And good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Glad you're here. I remember back when I was living in Dallas, Texas, I was working for uh, Dallas Theological Seminary while I was attending the seminary. And part of what I did was travel. I'd travel around and I'd go to different colleges and things to recruit for the seminary. And I remember on one occasion, uh, it was at the end of the day, and I was tired, I was exhausted, I was standing in the rental car line, I just returned it actually, and they gave me the bill. And it was higher than it should have been. They charged me an extra day. And, and I was none too happy about it. And I started feeling the pressure of the school, hey, how come we're paying to? So I decided to have a discussion with the uh, woman behind the counter, and it got louder, and it got angrier. And I remember at one point looking down at my shirt that said right there on the front of it, Dallas Theological Seminary. <laughs> and that moment, I was not doing a very good job of representing Dallas Theological Seminary, but even worse than that, I was not doing a good job of representing my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, we represent our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as his children. But sometimes we don't do such a great job at it. I was moved by something I read by a man named Brennan Manning. If you don't know who Brennan Manning is, he is a uh, Christian author with a very checkered past. He was a priest, he became a monk, and then he went through a complete breakdown. Uh, he went through a bad divorce, became an alcoholic, and then he, after that, he said, I am simply identifying myself as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he looked for love in all the wrong places there for a while. And he came to a realization, though, in the middle of, of the mess he was living in, he said this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. He said that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. What I want to talk about today is how do I represent and show Christ to an unbelieving world? How are we representing Christ the Apostle Paul had some very strict instructions he was giving to Titus that we'll see today in Titus chapter 3. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, 
we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. may be seated. We're continuing our journey this morning through the book of Titus. Very specific instructions were given to this man, Titus, on this island of Crete. Christianity was new there. And Paul said, Titus, there's a lot of false teaching, and I'm leaving you here to set it straight. The book is all about believing the right way and acting the right way. It's about talking the talk and walking the walk. We're getting a repetition somewhat this week of what we had previous weeks. And you know what? When the scriptures repeat it, guess what? So do we. That means we need to hear it twice. They would have heard it twice in a single sitting. We get to break it up week to week. So this morning we're going to again talk about the act of God's transformation. Paul's going to speak to Titus about it again. What God did to us, how he changed us, and then how do we live this transformed life? And then finally, how do we show the world the godliness that we believe in? And in that last point, there'll be Three points, but two of them will be combined. I'll talk about that more when we get there. Let's, talk, let's, let's start with our um, transformation that God does. And after some ex- explanation of Christian behavior that is to be extended to, the focus this week is on an unbelieving world. Previously it was a believing world, but now uh, the, the emphasis is on how do we act towards an unbelieving world. Uh, Paul talks about the unsaved state Of every single one of us. So I want to move to uh, verse 3. We'll come back and catch verses 1 and 2. But look at the description in verse 3 of we Christians prior to becoming Christians. He said, for we ourselves were once, and this is not flattering, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. And this last part is maybe the part that disconcerted me the most. Hated by others, and what else? Hating each other. I mean, this is pathetic. We can't even get along with the people with whom we don't believe with. Fellow unbelievers. That is the sinful condition, not flattering. And then what did God do? Look at verse 4. Notice the words. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. This is talking about Jesus and his love for us. It was his goodness and loving kindness. That's why he did what he did. And then what did he do? Verse 5, wonderful first three words. He saved us. He did the work. It's him working here. He saved you and I because we are good people and we do the right things all the time. And he saw all that goodness we do and he said, those are the people, I'm going to save them. Now don't run out of the room, hold on. 
Is that what it says? It says the opposite of that. It's, God, remember back in verse 3, we hated each other, led astray in every way, chasing lusts and passions and the things of this world. We couldn't do anything right. Look at the rest of verse 5. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, because we weren't doing any works in righteousness, but what? His mercy on us. The only way for you and I to be righteous was for someone to declare us righteous. Not because of what we do. This past Thursday night, you know, we're, we're doing these things called Theology Thursday. Just check it out sometime. We've been doing 10 weeks on the subject of salvation. And when you see the word righteousness and righteous pertaining to you and I, it is because we were righteous. God declared us righteous. Someday we will stand before God. And then how did he save us? Look at the rest of the verse. According to his mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, it was all God. God does the work. He transformed us. We're made righteous according to his mercy and the work of the Holy Spirit. Notice what it says. The first two works of the Holy Spirit, the washing and the regenerating, that's what happened in our past. That's what happened in a moment. We came to faith in Jesus Christ. He washed off all the sin. He washed off all the filth. He's not going to hold that against us. And then verse 6 tells us the Holy Spirit was poured out richly upon us. His grace always, always, always exceeds our need. There's always more available when we need it. He just, that's justifying us. And he also made us, graciously made us, the heirs of eternal life. All that brings us to the goal in verses 7 and 8, verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You're justified by grace. And again, someday you and I, we will stand before God in all his glory and all that majesty. <clears throat> we can't even scarcely imagine what that moment's going to be like. And in that moment, he will embrace you and I, as though we had never, ever, ever, ever committed a sin against him. In these oceans of love that we'll experience in a moment. This is all what he does to become these heirs to this hope. Then also in verse 8, so that... The saying is trustworthy. Now, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are good and beneficial for all people. So we live as people confident of our, our heavenly destination, intent on doing good works, careful to do good works. All that was made possible by nothing in us but because of Jesus Christ, because of Jesus Christ, now we can do these good works. And these good works, what we do on this earth, nothing we do on this earth is secure except the good works that we do in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, whatever eternal reward comes later, it only becomes 
reward as we do the good works Jesus intends us to do. You see, nothing is secure in this world. I was just reading a story about a man, his name was Philip Panis, and he had a tremendous watch collection. He had millions of dollars in watches. He wanted to keep them safe so he could uh, retire on these watches later. So he thought he did the safe thing. He put them in a safety deposit box at a bank. And then one day he went to retrieve those watches. They brought it out, popped open the lid, and it was, it was completely empty. True story. This was, uh, this was in uh, Philadelphia. The bank employees had mistakenly taken uh, his box and given it to somebody else. It was estimated he lost about $10 million. And that would make it the largest safety deposit uh, loss in American history. And he said this. He said, well, my impression about safety deposit boxes was that it was like you were putting things in Fort Knox. He said nothing could happen to it, but he said, I don't think that anymore. <laughs> no bank can completely guarantee the safety of our money, the safety of our possessions. Doctors can't guarantee the length of our lives. Insurance companies can't promise the safety of our homes and natural disasters. But our Father in heaven guarantees the protection of our souls and our eternal reward. We gain that by doing the good works that this passage is calling us to do. So be careful. Devote yourself to the works done because of Christ. That's what is really secure. I forget that sometimes. That's what becomes heavenly reward. So God does this transforming work. As a result, we do good works, like it says in verse 8. And then we live this transformed life. What is this life? So we go back, we look at verses 1 and 2, we find seven different commands in this passage. To be obedient, that echoes also Romans 13. Paul wrote this, by the way, these are themes throughout Paul's epistles. Through Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy and Titus, Philemon. All of these have these themes in them. How do we go about living a transformed life? He said, be obedient. Notice I skipped number one. Be obedient to whom? Subjects and rulers and authorities and others. Number three, be, be ready to do whatever is good. Slander no one. That means don't speak evil about people. Don't go around to your friends talking evil about somebody else. That's gossip. Be peaceable. We're not arguing with each other. We're considerate to each other. In that, we are showing humility. Treating other people is more important than ourselves. These are all the qualities of a Christian citizen that is out to influence their community for good. And you and I are here, one way or another, good or bad, we are all representing Christ all the time. Either the loveliness of Christ or the lack thereof. And this is precisely the behavior that comes from understanding uh, God's grace. And Paul called the community to submission to the rulers and the authorities. I'll remind you that the leader of the day was Nero. I was doing some more reading about Nero this past week. He was diabolical. He had his own mother killed, who was also his sometimes lover. In addition to that, he had a 
uh, a slave that he turned into a eunuch and then as a joke married that slave. Ultimately, through his uh, persecution of Christians, both Peter and Paul would be killed under the reign of Nero. What does Paul say? Be subject to the rulers and the authorities. And this is radical. And how do you cope with that kind of gross incompetence and immorality and mindless cruelty in a governmental leader? Paul says you submit. It's radical. Doesn't matter if you agree or not. In verses 9 and 10, Paul continues with additional instructions. In those verses, he says, down through 11, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. They're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice have nothing more to do with them. Knowing such persons warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. So in contrasting to engaging in good deeds that are beneficial, Titus was not to engage with what was worthless and unprofitable. In the context, Paul was talking about probably the very things the false teachers were promoting. Examples of foolish controversies. Uh, when the Jewish commentaries, actually they've preserved some of these. For example, should a, a Jew eat an egg laid on a festival day? What sort of wick and oil should a Jew use for candles that he burns on the Sabbath? And then the genealogies were speculations about the origins and the descendants of persons. And uh, some may have more spiritual significance than others. Then Paul gives that strict rule. If there's someone stirring up division over stupid things, two warnings, then have nothing to do with them. The reason for that rejection is that the, the, the divisive person has deviated from what is right and is now sinning. And this behavior, in the behavior, he's condemned himself. He's shown that he's guilty of sinning. If such a person refuses to judge himself, God will judge him. I want to talk now about this final question. How do we show the world our godliness? I want to Three thoughts, the last two will be combined. But first of all, as the passage says, warn divisive people. Warn divisive people. And this is an interesting kind of person. They may be low-key, just kind of gradually grinding away at love and unity. And, but sometimes it's in open view of the whole community. And it's when we are fighting over lesser things. And what often happens, you get one discontented person in the crowd. Yeah, they don't like something. Yeah, that new carpet they put in, I don't know. Mm, that gray, I don't know, I kind of feel like I'm just in a Navy ship sometimes. And they're discontented. But they're not content to keep it to themselves. They want other discontented persons joining along with them. So then they'll make themselves public. Warn them. I've been this person before. And I got called out on it. The person actually didn't have to say a thing. They spoke more in their silence. This was years ago. Brought up the music at the church. I brought it up. Said, you know, and all I said was, what do y'all think about that music? And it was silence. 
And if there had been a hole there, I'd have jumped right into it. I immediately knew, Chad, you screwed up. I was trying in my discontent to get others to join me, and in their maturity, they did not join in. Felt like a heel, but they loved me enough not to join in my discontentment. And let me tell you, you're going to be in that moment. You're going to be in that place, and you've got to make the decision. Are you going to do what the scriptures are describing, or are you going to try to make it maybe easier on yourself in the moment? And maybe you agree. So what? It could be anything. You're upset about fill in the blank. Too many lights, too few lights. Music's not loud. Can't hear the music. Warn the person, then move on. Warn them once, warn them twice, then you dodge that person. And then the next part, I want to combine the next two thoughts to demonstrate godly submission and then show peaceability, gentleness, and complete courtesy to everyone. And this submission, and uh, these two, they, they really go together. And the submission to those in authority, and the second part of that as well, because we're in a very interesting place as United States Christians. And we've got this unique task of living with unbelievers and having the ability to influence government. And with that comes great responsibility. Because in the act of influencing government, we can, by our words, alienate ourselves from the very ones who God would have us to love into the kingdom. <clears throat> in his commentary on this section of Titus, uh, John MacArthur has a very interesting discussion on this passage. He takes a few pages to do it. And a few of his comments really caught my eye on Titus chapter 3 and its relationship to contemporary American Christianity. He says this, Paul obviously was consumed with the divine mandate to evangelize when he wrote this letter to Titus. It was not his desire for Christians living in the pagan culture of Crete to turn on the unbelievers and try to force changes in cultural standards and personal behavior in order to be less offended by their society. In other words, he's saying, don't just think it's your job to make that a comfortable place to live for you. Don't worry about conversion. Just get them acting the right way so they're not stepping on your toes. That's not what he's saying here. And we all wish American standards were better. All of us. We wish it wasn't the way it was. The vulgarity and, and then the self-indulgence. But as noble as our desires to reform the culture may be, that's not how God has called the church to impact society. MacArthur said it this way, by promoting laws and judicial decisions that support biblical standards of behavior. It doesn't mean we don't interact with government. As a matter of fact, uh, if you have a chance today, you should go and read the letter that John MacArthur wrote to the governor of California. It was very pointed, and he was speaking truth to power and calling him out on some things. We are Christians. We are to vote. We are to have a voice. MacArthur goes on. He said, when Christians become hostile to government and society in general, they almost inevitably become hostile to the unsaved leaders of that government and the unsaved citizens who live in that society. 
And I think this was, really brings it to a head. We cannot become enemies of the very ones we seek to win to Christ. Our potential brothers and sisters, we have to love those who do not believe what we believe. And ultimately, they come to Christ not because we beat them over the head, not because we beat them in the court, not because we win the culture war, which, by the way, I think we've pretty much lost. We do it by showing and sharing the love of Jesus Christ. Putting this all together, show the unbelieving world your transformed life by treating them how Christ has treated you. In the days leading up to September 11th, the fighting in Afghanistan was actually um, resulting in thousands of refugees. They were pouring into Pakistan, squashed in tents. And two, uh, a couple, the the Woodberries, their names were Dudley and Roberta. They were working in these refugee camps. And the uh, conditions of the camp were harsh. And Roberta uh, and her class, they were working there. They, They took school supplies to students. And the workers there were providing sandals. And, and for a week, they washed every foot with antibacterial soap. These were Christians. And then they gave each of them new sandals, a quilt, a shawl, a small bag for everyone. And then one of the young women, part of this group, she prayed this silent prayer over one of the children. She said this one really caught her eye. She said, Dear Father, this little girl looks like she does not have anyone to care for her. Let my touch feel to her as if you are touching her. May she remember how you touched her this day. And may she seek after you hereafter. Thank you for those who seek you and find you. And many children looked up. They smiled. And then sometime later a teacher asked, in one of those tents, asked that little refugee girl and her class, she said, who are the best Muslims? And that little girl spoke up and had an interesting answer. She replied, the kafirs. The kafirs, that's a term meaning unbelievers that is often used of Christians. And when the teacher recovered from the shock, she said, well, why would you say that? And the young girl said, the Muslim fighters killed my father, but the Christians washed my feet. Let's have that kind of impact on an unbelieving world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your instruction. We thank you that you saved us, not because of anything in us, but because you showed your mercy on us. And Father, may we have courage to live out the commands that you've given us. And Lord, may we show an unbelieving world the love that you have shown to us, that they might come to faith in you because someone decided to show them the love of Jesus Christ. Be with us now as we go to this time of communion. In your name we pray, amen.